Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Political Science, podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Susan Lee Bell, here at St. Joseph's University. Today, I'm joined by Daniel Manningly, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Yale University, to discuss his book, The Art of Political Control in China, published by Cambridge University Press in December 2019. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. Before we talk about this book, which makes such compelling... um, observations about authoritarianism and civil society. Tell me a little bit about how you came to write this book and some of the challenges posed by doing fieldwork in China. Absolutely. So I think that writing this book was motivated by seeing there are two astonishing things about, about China. First is just the tremendous amount of growth and change that China has gone through uh, over the last decade and a half that I've been traveling to China. And of course, before that, uh, so since you know, 1978, China has lifted uh, 800 million people out of poverty. Um, and along with these changes have been really also far-reaching government interventions in society. Uh, so I think you know one symbolic thing that I think a lot of people are familiar with is the one-child policy, which has uh, limited the number of children that people can have. It's been revised now to a kind of two-child policy, but this government is still sort of intervening in society uh, that way. The other thing that that really struck me was just the huge amount of urban change. Uh, and with that has come uh, these land development programs that have requisitioned land and homes from over 100 million uh, farmers and urban residents. And so China's done all of these kind of far-reaching policies while also controlling controlling protests and preventing a destabilizing protest. Uh, so the kind of puzzle that I'm interested in with this book is like, why do some people comply with these policies that intervene pretty heavily in their in their lives, and uh, why do others uh, why do others not comply with uh, with the state? Uh, so to kind of give you an example, maybe t- start to talk a little bit about you know, how I did this book. Um, so, you know, one person uh, that I met when I was doing field research in Sichuan, who I talk about in the beginning of this book, was this activist named named Qingmei. Uh, so Qingmei was someone who you know I think is a patriot, someone who who loves China, but at the same time uh, is uh, was was really upset because her local government took her land, her farmland, which had been in her family for uh, for generations, for no compensation uh, for for a local development project. Uh, and this sort of turned Qingmei from a, I guess, sort of regular citizen into an activist uh, who was regularly going to uh, to pressure the local government. In many ways, Qingmei is a kind of is a kind of exception. So, how do you get some people who end up like Qingmei, who who become really upset and protest against the government, and uh, why do others why do others not not end up doing that? Um, so, I mean, do, do you want me to sort of talk about the uh, the way that I that a way that I researched this book too? Is that well? I mean, you've got you've got 
case studies, you've got experiments that you did, and then you also use some data sets. So just tell us a little bit about why you chose the places that you did um, to do the case studies and, you know, and the kind of experiments or face-to-face surveys that you were, where you were doing. So at the heart of the book are these qualitative case studies of, of different, uh, often villages in, in China. Uh, and so doing the research for that was actually, was a lot of, a lot of fun in a lot of ways, even if the, the stories I was telling sometimes weren't themselves fun, but actually going to rural China and interviewing people. So I interviewed over a hundred people uh, for the book over the course of, well, I started doing research for the book in 2012, which I a long time ago now. Uh, and, uh, did my last interviews for the book, uh, you know, about a year and a half ago. Um, and so one piece of the book was this kind of close to the ground, trying to understand just what happens in individual villages, uh, when say the government decides to come in and requisition a bunch of land from farmers in that village. Um, and how does the government, uh, do things like this while, uh, maintaining political stability or how does the government implement the one child policy as well, maintaining political stability. So one part of the book was, uh, me going around and, uh, interviewing people in, uh, in villages in rural China. Uh, another, do another piece. Oh, go ahead. Do they trust you? Do they trust you? Do they, how, how do people react when you show up in a rural village in China? Well, it depends on it depends on the village, and it depends on how how I got there. So, I think like a lot of people who do this kind of qualitative field research in China, which is actually which has become quite a bit harder to do in the last five years, um, but it's still possible to do. Uh, rely to a certain degree on help uh, from friends, from other academics, and from contacts. So, I benefited a tremendous amount from friends and uh, other academics who uh, were willing to kind of connect me to people on the ground who then became sort of my entree into, into these different, these different villages. Um, And, you know, in some cases where say, especially with things like land requisitions where a government had maybe come in and, uh, you know, attempted or succeeded in uh, expropriating, seizing farmland from farmers, uh, this upset would often upset people. And so this people would be really willing to talk and complain basically uh, about, about what had happened. Um, And so then it was sort of a matter of trying to make sure that I was being judicious and, you know, not just relying on the people who were say, you know, angry at the local government uh, in order to, to collect information. So I also did the best job I could to talk to people that in one way or another were connected with a local state, whether that was, you know, current local uh, village officials or township officials or, uh, you know, retired township and village officials. When most political scientists or sociologists or historians think about civil society, they're familiar with the claim that civil society improves people's access to public goods. They've read Tocqueville, Putnam. They've concluded that social capital builds civic groups like bowling leagues or in your case studies, um, lineage associations and societies, and that those enrich social life for the people and also bolster the kind of civic engagement that supports um, more freedom and helps people resist authoritarian institutions. 
But your book sees the world very differently and also sees China very differently. So I'm wondering if you could remind readers of the usual claims about civil society and and explain how you see civil society somewhat differently when you go into the rural villages in China. So I think the typical claim about civil society is that it helps people organize horizontally from the bottom up and press their claims against the government. And the basic argument that I'm making in the book is that civil society is also really useful for government officials to control society from the top down. So when it comes to China, there's a really great book, which is really kind of the inspiration in in some ways for me setting down the path of writing this book. Uh, There's a book by Lily Tsai called Accountability Without Democracy, which is about the role of lineage and temple associations in rural China. And the argument that she makes, which I think is right, uh, is that these uh, lineage and temple associations uh, in rural China can have a really positive effect on governance if you look at some kinds of outcomes. Uh, The outcomes she looks at are public goods provision. Uh, Specifically, she looks at things like whether or not a village has a good uh, schoolhouse or well-paved roads. Um, And I want to sort of go beyond this and look at the other things the government does, uh, look at not just uh, the things that the government provides to people, but the things that the government asks people to do, whether it's uh, pay taxes or uh, give up their land or comply with the law. Uh, So what I sort of found in the book was that uh, these local civil society groups, while they have this positive benefit that De Tocqueville or Putnam or Lily Tsai uh, talk about, uh, they also have this other control function. And I kind of highlight three different ways that these groups are used by the government to control society, especially in authoritarian contexts. Uh, the first strategy the governments use is uh, cultivating civil society. Uh, the second is co-opting civil society elites, and the third is infiltrating civil society. So I want to kind of go into a little tiny bit of depth with each of those three. No, no, please do, because the, there's there's three really terrific chapters, one on each, how each of them function, and it'd be terrific if you can walk us through each of them a little bit. Absolutely. Um, so the, fir- the first sort of strategy is cultivating civil society and then, and then subverting it. Uh, so the strategy here is to, to either have government officials themselves build civic and social groups from the ground up or else, you know, encourage others, encourage sort of potential allies, uh, allies to do this. So in rural China, which is the focus of this book, uh, you can imagine a sort of village official who would uh, encourage other members of the village maybe to help set up a dance troupe or to revive a, a lineage association or to set up a, a temple council uh, and the presence of these groups would help often helps local officials in a couple ways. Uh, the first way is, uh, is that the sort of social cohesion that these groups create has a nice pro-social side, but it can also be harnessed by the state. So uh, it can encourage uh, the, the presence of these groups, whether it's a kind of a dance troupe or a lineage association, uh, can encourage people to cooperate with each other, but it also encourages people to, to cooperate with, uh, with the state. So you can, uh, I think you can go kind of beyond China uh, and look elsewhere. And I think other uh, kind of autocrats in other settings have used sort of similar strategies of trying to trying to cultivate these groups. I mean, I think one prominent recent example is uh, 
Viktor Orban in Hungary, as part of Viktor Orban's sort of rise to power in Hungary, involved the creation of what he called civic circles. And these are kind of like local uh, associations that uh, Orban encouraged people to create in Hungary. These are grassroots associations. And you know, ultimately, uh, what was the kind of bigger picture consequence of the creation of these uh, local civic groups? It was uh, the creation of a more autocratic, uh, less democratic, uh, less liberal uh, authoritarian uh, state in in Hungary. Uh, the second in the chapter, you, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, and in the chapter, you you talk about how they're able to collect information, how they're able to track behavior. So that same sort of intimacy and trust that you have with these individuals in your group also allows them to hand over more specific information about you to the government. That's right. Yeah. So the, the fact that people are enmeshed in these groups, I, I argue, also makes them more legible or more visible to uh, to the government. Uh, you know, if you're a member of a, of a lineage association, you're going every day uh, to, or you know, a few times a week, say to the to the to the lineage hall. It just makes you easier to. It makes it easier for local officials to observe you and figure out who you are and and what you're doing and what your political opinions are. Just say a little bit about the lineage associations, because I think some listeners will be very familiar and some will have never heard of this. So just explain a little of what they're like and what they do and how often they meet. It's a lineage association. You know, these weren't something until I started spending time in rural China. Uh, this was something I wasn't familiar with at all. So lineage groups in China are extended kinship groups. You can think of them as essentially clans. Uh, and in a given village, they might have, and it could be as small as several dozen people, but often they number in the hundreds or even or even thousands of people. So these are extended kitchen networks where everyone is descended from a common known ancestor. You know, this might be from 300, 400, 600 years ago. Uh, and these lineage groups often in, in the past, they might have had, uh, they might have had common property. Uh, now, uh, under under the Communist Party, uh, especially in recent years, uh, these these lineage associations might have uh, lineage halls, uh, which are uh, sort of uh, essentially ancestral ancestral temples that are used to uh, to uh, worship and venerate ancestors. These ancestral temples often have kind of spirit tablets in them. And I think an important function of these uh, these lineage associations is they're, they're they're kind of like social clubs for your clan. So one thing that they do uh, in in some places in rural China is they might hold yearly feasts uh, around the Lantern Festival, around Chinese New Year, or around uh, dragon boat races uh, in, uh, in in the summer. Um, so they, they do have this nice pro-social side, but at the same time, they've historically been had this, uh, there's this tension between uh, the fact that there are these grassroots social groups that are in some ways outside of the state. At the same time, the state has often found them uh, pretty useful uh, as a way to understand society, make it more uh, legible and controllable. Okay. So so for the first one, cultivating, mm, the government can, through these associations, gather information that they wouldn't be able to get. And, and, and that helps them establish social control. Uh, what about co-opting? So co-opting, the strategy of co-optation uh, is, is another way to harness, to harness civil society. So in addition to just building local civil society groups, officials can attempt to, in one way or another, co-opt 
the elites or the leaders of of these social groups. So if we return to the example of the lineage group in in rural China, these lineage groups in some places have an individual who is the lineage head. Uh, Usually, uh, these are often men in their you know, 50s, 60s, and older uh, who have gathered sort of significant informal authority within the group. They're kind of trusted broker within the group to whom people might go for, for information or uh, if they want to you know, have a wedding or a funeral, this is someone uh, to whom other members of the lineage might go to you know, ask their opinion about you know, how, should we, how should we do this. Um, and so they're, as they're important kind of linchpins of these of these social groups. And so they can also then be really useful allies of the state, especially when local officials, when uh, you know, communist party cadres or government officials uh, want to implement a policy in society, they, uh, they can, like say the one child policy uh, or a land requisition, they can go to these lineage heads and ask them for help um, and tell them, you know, we need uh, to, we want to you know, build this development project, we'd like to expropriate you know, 30 acres of lands in our village. Um, and, you know, we want to do it on the cheap. We don't really want to compensate pretty well. Can you kind of help us out? Uh, so to the degree that local officials can co-opt them, especially by including them in formal uh, village bodies, uh, like village councils, uh, it can help them control and, and govern local society. And again, I don't think this is something that's necessarily restricted just to China. I mean, I think there's there's an example that I talk about in this book of the city of New Haven, uh, Connecticut, where that, I, that we that. always think of when we think of rural China. That's right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The perfect analog to rural China, New Haven, Connecticut. Um, yeah, but I think there's, I do think that there is a similarity in the strategies uh, of governance, uh, even in a in a democratic setting like New Haven. Um, so I write a little bit briefly in the book about that uh, parallels between the strategy that's used in rural China. I take it all the way to the urban United States in the 1960s. So you know, if a lot of village officials in China who in the last two decades have tried to requisition land from people, uh, often in some cases for poor compensation. Uh, this happened in the United States too, especially with redevelopment of urban cores in the 1960s. So I talk in the book about how you know, in New Haven, Connecticut, the mayor at the time, Richard Lee, used kind of broadly similar strategy in a more democratic context, uh, where he wanted to uh, use eminent domain to take a lot of uh, land in order to redevelop downtown New Haven, in order to build this highway system through New Haven. So he, one of the things he did, he was a you know, pretty savvy political operator. He, he created these councils that then drew in and arguably you know, co-opted the leaders of local civil society, whether it's, you know, union leaders or leaders of a particular you know, ethnic community like the Italian community in New Haven. Um, and this really helped to forestall uh, any widespread coordinated mobilization against uh, Mayor Lee's redevelopment, uh, redevelopment program. So I do think that strange as, strange as it may be to think that there are these parallels between how governance works in the United States, how political control works in the United States, and how it does in a, in a context like China. No, that's really interesting. Um, one question I had reading through the book was about gender. Um, you don't talk a lot directly about it, but w- what did you observe in terms of how these groups work and whether there are differences? Are there women's groups? Are there men's groups? Do Are they always mixed together? Who are the leaders? Is there any sort of difference among the groups that are predominantly female or male? 
Yeah, gender is really important. And it's, it's a big, I think, in some ways, blind spot of the book and blind spot really in our understanding of how governance works in China. So, you know, if there are any grad students out there looking for a PhD topic, I think this is something that really needs to be studied. Um, the so, so I think there are a couple of patterns I noticed. First is, yes, there was a lot of variation. Um, and some of that was because of the social structure of these groups. So if you think about a lineage group, especially in some place like, say, eastern Guangdong, which is in southern, in, in, in southern China, uh, where these groups, these lineage groups are pretty, uh, pretty patriarchal uh, and have norms that are pretty patriarchal. So, and the leaders of these groups are often, are often men. Um, and, so, and these men are often sort of enlisted and sometimes to help uh, to help the state. Although, as I talk about in the book, there's also if to if you make adversaries of these leaders, they can be really effective adversaries because they're so good at, uh, at at organizing their group against the state. Um, at the same time, I think the second the second dynamic uh, is that a lot of the leaders and I would be, you know, I, I don't have a good specific solid number, but you know, anecdotally, I think a lot of the leaders of these local of these uh, protest movements at the local level are are women, um, and so I think the the gender dynamics there end up being end up being interesting because it's often you know to to a certain degree women leading some of these protest movements or participating in these protest movements at high rates, um, and local officials in these places are are predominantly men. Uh, so there's there's definitely I think some some interesting gender dynamics there that I hope somebody will work on and unpack uh, better than I did in this book anyway. You've, um, I think you've touched on this, but I want to make it clear enough for listeners because they haven't read the book. Um, can you just remind everybody the difference between formal and informal coercive institutions? And because this book really is about the informal coercive institutions. That's right. So I mean, I think there's a whole, so in the book, I, I conceptually try to divide this tools that the state uses to get people to comply with it into kind of two big buckets. You know, the first are these formal institutions of coercion. The second are informal institutions. The formal institutions of coercion are things like the police, uh, the military, surveillance, uh, the, the formal surveillance apparatus. Uh, and the argument of the book isn't that these are are unimportant, because I think that they're undoubtedly important and they're and they're important in China today. I think, especially if you look at you know what's happening in Western China, for example, in the in, in Xinjiang, uh, which is this autonomous region that's um, uh, populated with a uh, with a Uyghur. It's, it's the the plurality the plurality of the province is is uh, the Uyghur minority, um, and there these formal institutions of coercion are really important. So I'm not arguing that uh, that harder-edged coercion through the police isn't important, but I think that there's this whole other set of informal tactics of uh, political control that aren't quite as violent or coercive as you know using the police or using really intrusive electronic surveillance that I think we have uh, that I think is a little bit of a blind spot in our understanding about how states actually govern and how states authoritarian states in particular actually rule. Uh, so the argument of the book is partly, yes, there are these formal kind of institutions of coercion like the military and the police, but we also should be paying attention to the ways in which authoritarian states essentially use society to govern itself and use uh, kind of informal tactics in order to, uh, to control society. Um, and in a kind of day-to-day, -day, everyday life, uh, these informal 
institutions of control, I argue, are actually often more important than the kind of more formal institutions of control. You mentioned the Uyghurs. Um, Why is a lot of listeners are not familiar with with the details of Chinese politics and the history of the tensions? Why are ethnic minorities such a threat to the CCP? Well, I think ultimately, you know, the CCP's ultimate goal, I think it's safe to say, is to remain in power uh, and to keep China both, you know, stable and to ensure its territorial integrity. So the Western parts of China, especially Xinjiang and uh, Tibet, which are populated by the Tibetan ethnic minority and uh, the Uyghurs, who are predominantly Muslim, uh, represents a potential threat to China's stability and territorial integrity. Uh, I think that because, you know, in the case of, of Xinjiang and the Uyghur ethnic minority, there's been this separatist movement, uh, which has at times been uh, violent and undertaken you know, terrorist acts, both in Xinjiang and in the rest of, and in the rest of China. Uh, the party, you know, sees this group as a threat and the response, uh, which I think normatively is out of proportion to uh, to the threat is uh, has been to uh, crack down in a really harsh way on uh, in in Western China. So a lot of people who study China fall in love with China and they find themselves very sympathetic. Um, other people study China and they find themselves scared or uh, very, very critical. And I, I'm wondering with this decade plus of time in China, where do you find yourself uh, with China? And, and, and what does it feel like to be reading the news about Hong Kong or the Uyghurs in the, the media, which has changed a lot since you started working on China 10 years ago, the New York Times wasn't covered with China news. Um, it, where, where, where are you in just thinking about the country? Yeah, so that's that's an important question, um, and I'm not sure I want to paint myself into a corner by declaring myself, you know, panda hugger or whatever. But uh, I certainly ended up in this gig because I thought China was a really interesting place, and had a lot of friends from China who I really respected and and respect and and, and like, and uh, I just you know thought that it was a really interesting place, especially as a social scientist to, to do work and, and to think about. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, there's this, uh, I guess, you know, interest in and respect for, you know, China and the journey that China has been on for the last 5,000 years, uh, plus, uh, and, uh, so that's, I mean, I think that's, that's one thing. On the other hand, there's kind of my, you know, identity as a social science researcher who I'm kind of interested in empirically understanding China and trying to, you know, build theories and concepts and ideas that might apply to China and might travel to other places. And hopefully, you know, I can uh, keep the sort of more emotional part of myself uh, separate, you know, the part that uh, really, I guess, in some ways, you know, uh, you know, fell in love with traveling to and, and being in China uh, can hopefully be sort of separate from that, <laughs> that researcher, that researcher social science part of me. And then, I mean, I think that the hard thing, yeah, has been watching uh, some of the developments uh, in, in recent years, especially around uh, things like, uh, like Xinjiang. Um, and here, I think it is important to not 
know, conflate the Chinese Communist Party with uh, China as a whole or, or people or people in China. Uh, but certainly what the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party has decided to do in, in Xinjiang is, uh, you know, deeply alarming and just unsettling as somebody who outside of my kind of day job as a social scientist who really, you know, cares about, you know, people, um, and, and doesn't want to see, uh, you know, don't want to see people suffer. Uh, so I think that these, I think that these two things, I think that these are well, really three things can coexist, you know, this kind of interest in China and, and respect for it along with, you know, alarm at specific things that are happening in China, especially the, uh, you know, internment of hundreds of thousands, probably more than a million, uh, Uyghurs in Western China. Um, along with this kind of social side, social science side, where I'm, you know, trying to understand China and relate it to what's happening in the rest of the world. So, Dan, the the book focuses on rural China, um, but you also say some things about the cities. Not very much, but some. I'm I'm wondering, given the differences in density and infrastructure and transportation and communication, and particularly the internet. Can we take the lessons from this book about authoritarianism and civil society and apply them to cities in China, or is this kind of two separate, different I, systems? I think so. I think that you can take the lessons from that I've that I've learned from rural China and apply them to what's happening in urban China. So the kind of third tactic that I, I didn't really have a chance to get into depth with is a strategy of infiltration. I think that's something that the party. Uh, the Communist Party has invested in really deeply, both in rural and in urban China. So the strategy of infiltration essentially boils down to building uh, networks of informants who are who are connected to the state uh, in in some way. So in in rural China, villages are broken down into what are called villager small groups. Uh, you can think of this is like the equivalent in the U.S., I guess, of having uh, a neighborhood watch where the villages or where a neighborhood in a in a city say. Uh, has a you know, designated person who is responsible for other people and responsible for kind of monitoring the goings on uh, in in that neighborhood. Uh, in urban China, there's a kind of similar system of residential committees, and then below these residential committees, residential committees often have people who are charged with being, say, the entryway monitor for a particular apartment building uh, who. Is supposed to monitor, you know, the comings and goings of people. Who is supposed to do a lot of good things, like maintain order, reduce crime, ensure that uh, things are you know, sanitary and clean. But at the same time, these monitors have a political function, which is to try to essentially, you know, be you know nosy barkers with their neighbors and and try to figure out what their what their political leanings are. Um, and I think this is this kind of strategy of infiltration is something that other authoritarian regimes have taken to even more extremes than the Communist Party in China. Most famous example of which might be in in East Germany, the Stasi's network of hundreds of thousands of informants, many of them in uh, cities and the urban parts of of East Germany. Uh, so I think strategies like the strategy of infiltration aren't just specific to the interesting in some ways unique context of rural China. I think that it travels both to urban China and I hope to some degree beyond. Um. There's also been some changes since you wrote the book with social credit, uh, where the party has looked to create these scores for people um, 
and you can probably explain that better than I will, but so I'll let you do it, but they've only emerged really in the last five years. So I'm wondering what the role of the internet would play in uh, establishing the kind of social control that you're talking about in the book. That's right. So I think that these sort of electronic tactics of social control are important. And I deal with them very briefly in the book. Uh, But the punchline is that I think that these more sort of personal informal methods of control uh, are still really important and in many ways more important and effective than uh, these these kind of electronic uh, high-tech methods of social control, whether it's a social credit system or their surveillance system. So what's what's the social credit system uh, for reader or listeners who aren't aren't familiar with it? The social credit system, I think that uh, and maybe at some future point wants to be a kind of comprehensive national unified system that integrates a lot of information about people's you know, financial trustworthiness and along with things like their compliance with the law and maybe even their uh, political uh, compliance into one sort of unified uh, score. But I think some of the reporting on this has been misleading, actually. Um, what it is right now is actually a really decentralized set of local policy experiments where d- different governments are creating something that's I think closer to, in most cases, to like a financial credit score that in the U.S. would be set up, you know, through well, one of the financial bureaus, um, and and right now is, it hasn't reached the level of a kind of Orwellian national unified credit score. Okay, so sometimes it's portrayed in the media as if I'm going to be nasty while I'm buying my groceries, and that will be reported, and that will be part of my social credit score. You're saying that's an overstatement of what's what's in mind? Yeah, that's an overstatement of where the where the social credit system is now. I mean, I think there are fears that it could eventually evolve in that direction, that it could uh, be both a lot more comprehensive and coercive than it is now. But now it's more akin to something where if you, say, haven't paid uh, a court fine, uh, you might be prevented from buying train tickets. Uh, that's something closer to what the typical use of the social, at least in my understanding, I'm not an expert in this topic, but that's closer to where their social credit score is now. So Dan, you finished this very big project that you've been at for over a decade. What, what, what now? What, what, are, what is your research turning to now or has already turned to? So I think what's next for me is trying to, in some ways, uh, expand the scope of what of what I'm interested in uh, with this book, The Art of Political Control in China, uh, and look more historically and look at uh, sort of more, uh, even, even bigger and more kind of violent instances of political uh, contention and, and political control. So the book is, is mostly about China now and in the last uh, decade or so, uh, and how uh, the, the Communist Party now tries to rule. The next project for me, I think, is to look at uh, how, why people participate in uh, more more kind of violent political movements, uh, whether that's revolutionary movements like the 1911 movement that overthrew the Qing dynasty or, you know, less violent movements like the 1989 uh, protests, uh, pro-democracy protests in China or something in between uh, like, the, like the Hong Kong protests. Um, and try to understand both why people participate in it and how uh, the people who are charged with repressing it and this kind of formal coercive apparatus, why the police officers and why the military sometimes side with uh, 
with a state as you would sort of expect them to, and sometimes side with protesters. Um, so that's where I'm going next, trying to sort of open it up and think uh, bigger and more historically. Well, we'll look forward to the next book and getting you back on the podcast. I want to recommend the book to listeners who are familiar with China. Uh, there's a lot of detail here. If you're like me and you're not familiar with China, Dan does a remarkable job of translating for you. And um, if you have any interest in civil society, authoritarianism generally, this is really a book for for all political scientists and people interested in China and politics. So Dan, thank you so much for sharing with us today. And I'm going to urge everybody to go out and buy The Art of Political Control in China. Um, It's available from the Cambridge University Press website. This is a December 2019 book, so really it is very new. Also available from online providers. Dan, do you have a shout out for any stores in New Haven that are carrying this book? Or oh, I wish there are a lot of great. Uh, there are a lot of great independent bookstores in New Haven. So if you're in New Haven, yeah, check out uh, Atticus, which is my favorite local bookstore. But Susan, thank you so much for for having me on the program. I really enjoyed the conversation. I loved the book, and uh, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you. <laughs>